0: Welcome to Episode 97 of Primary Care Update. I'm Mark A. Bell. I'm a family physician and a professor at the University of Georgia and editor-in-chief of Essential Evidence Plus.
1: I'm Kate Rowland, a family physician and associate professor at Rush University.
2: I'm John Hickner, family physician and editor-in-chief of the Journal of Family Practice.
3: Hi, I'm Henry Barry, another family physician and one of the co-founders of InfoPoems. If you just finished celebrating Valentine's Day, I hope that you all had time to spend with your loved ones. Much is happening currently in the world of sports, with one very sad exception. Uh, Long-time listeners know how much I love the game of baseball, and right now, because of labor issues and the lockout, spring training, which is usually my first day of spring, is going to be pushed back quite a bit if it happens this year at all.
0: Well, that will certainly, uh, we'll follow that very closely, Henry. On this podcast, we highlight patient-oriented evidence that matters or poems. If you want all of them, subscribe to Essential Evidence, where you get a poem daily, plus a great primary care reference. Um, Go check it out at EssentialEvidencePlus.com. It does make me think, I don't think I've watched an entire baseball game in probably 20 years I'll, I'll take it up again when I retire. The opinions expressed on Premier Care Update are those of the commentators, and this podcast doesn't represent medical advice or any kind of endorsement of any kind of product. You can get CME credit from the IAFP for listening to the podcast. Just go to IAFP.com, click on their education webpage, and find our podcast. This week, acne treatments, hypoglycemia among institutionalized elders with type 2 diabetes, antiplatelet therapy after a minor stroke or TIA, and lockdowns and COVID-19 mortality. Kate, tell us a little bit about acne.
1: Yeah, this is another great one for family doctors because we're going to be all over the map with, uh, with this podcast. So I today have a systematic review and a network meta-analysis of acne treatments. It's a big study, 40 trials, 12 meds or combinations of medications and about 18,000 patients who all had mild to moderate acne. An interesting thing right off the bat, the researchers began by asking patients with acne what was the most important thing to them in the study of acne treatments. And the patients said that self-reported imp- improvement was more important than an investigator reported outcome. And the most surprising thing there was that the researchers actually took that to heart. And in this study, they, they do focus on patient reported improvement rather than like the Davenport acne scale or whatever. That's not a thing, don't go looking for that. So the primary outcome of this study were the proportion of patients who reported at least moderate improvement and the proportion who withdrew from the study or stopped using the study medication due to adverse events. So the studies included were a mix of active drug, drug versus placebo cream or active drug versus a different active drug. <laughs> And you'll remember, of course, that a network meta-analysis can report either direct comparisons, so drug versus drug, or indirect comparisons, so the authors can statistically compare topicals that didn't previously go head-to-head in the same trial. So what they found was that adapalene versus benzoyl peroxide, or BPO, was most effective compared to placebo creams based on meta-analysis of both those indirect and direct comparisons, with clindamycin plus BPO coming in second and Adapalene alone coming in third. And the researchers said that withdrawals due to adverse events were uncommon, but it was highest in the most effective group, so the Adapalene plus BPO, followed by BPO alone. Uh, adverse effects, as you may know, are going to be like redness and peeling and some skin sensitivity. Adapalene a topical retinoid that for years I never, ever prescribed because it was more expensive and harder to get than other topical retinoids, but it's been sold over the counter for a couple of years. It's not quite at the same prescription strength dose, uh, but because it's, you know, like $14 at any any mm-hmm. pharmacy, uh, it, it is one that I use all the time. The fi- findings of this meta-analysis are actually in line with treatment guidelines from the American Academy of Dermatology. It's always nice when that happens. So final word goes to the American Academy of Dermatology. They recommend against monotherapy with a topical antibiotic, like using topical clinda alone. Don't do that. Uh, Due to the risk of resistance. So use the clinda erythromycin or whatever your favorite topical antibiotic is uh, with BPO With or without the retinoid for mild or moderate acne That's what I have about acne Henry. What do you think?
3: Thank you, Kate. So first thing this um, issue there you'll see a little bit of a Valentine's Day theme and uh, the acne paper reminded me of a poem we did several years ago. It was a randomized crossover trial of four weeks of chocolate versus jelly beans. And during the period that the participants were taking, were on chocolate, they had about five more lesions and had one fewer lesion during the time that they were using jelly beans. So you can take that to heart. Uh, I I really do like the um, patient orientation in this, Uh, we have to keep in mind that scales by researchers are there for a purpose. They help to anchor so that when uh, a researcher says that this is a uh, Bristol uh, stool formed uh, scale of seven, everybody knows exactly what that means, whereas the patient orientation is a little bit less clear. So it's really for for researchers talking to researchers, but I do like the, the patient orientation here. Um, And then this reminds me that uh, benzoyl peroxide, that was the treatment of choice way back when I was a medical student. And here we are several decades later, and it is still part of the foundational treatment for those with acne.
2: An oldie but goodie. Oldie but goodie. Yes. That is good to hear. And I'm uh, (sighs) especially glad that adapalene now is available at a cheaper price because some of the acne regimens could get quite expensive. So that's good news.
0: Yeah, I was using BPO when I had acne. <laughs> that was a long time ago. A long time ago. Okay, John has the quiz this week.
2: Yes, well, it is Valentine's Day week, so here's the question. The Feast of St. Valentine, which is the precursor of Valentine's Day, was established in what century? Was it the 2nd, 5th, 9th, 14th, or actually there is no Feast of St. Valentine's Day? Stay tuned. <laughs> Henry, you have a bonus? Oh, Yeah, this
3: is just a piece of arcane trivia. Name the classic romantic movie in which there's this famous scene that's shot outside of the church that purports to house the skull and bones of St. Valentine.
1: All right. stay, stay, stay tuned, <laughs> <laughs> this is the exciting week that there we get our game trivia one
0: piece of trivia per <laughs> podcast. Okay. Oh, okay. <laughs>
1: All right. Yeah, I
0: think you're trying to squeeze in about five this podcast. <laughs> anyway. Um, okay. The king of trivia is next.
3: Uh, (laughs) So, this next poem asks, how frequent is hypoglycemia among elderly institutionalized persons with type 2 diabetes mellitus? This was a uh, French paper uh, paper by Bouillet and colleagues published uh, just this past December in Age and Aging. We get both. Um, It's a cohort study that took place in six nursing homes. They identified 42 individuals with type 2 diabetes who were taking medications that could cause hypoglycemia, insulin, and uh, sulfonylureas and the like. And what they did was they hooked these individuals up to these continuous glucose monitors for about 14 days, but they didn't show the results to these patients or the staff, and the staff did their usual care, the nursing staff of whether it was four times a day, finger sticks, or once a day, they were left to their own um, measures. What they found was that the care staff identified about five hypoglycemic events that took place in four individuals uh, compared with 242 events using the continuous glucose monitors during that same uh, time period and as you might expect the, there were quite a few uh, almost 45% of those actually experienced severe hypoglycemia meaning they had blood sugars that were less than 54 and as you might imagine once they started to adjust for things like age and bmi and the like that the lower the a1c the higher the risk of hypoglycemic events so it's a it's a small study it's been reinforced in other settings that um that individuals who are on these um, hypoglycemic potentially inducing um, agents actually do cause quite a few events. And this aligns very nicely with the uh, Choosing choosing Wisely campaign in Canada that actually recommends avoiding using such medications to try to achieve a hemoglobin A1c of less than 75 Mark.
0: Yeah, in, in older adults in particular, but yeah, <clears throat> maybe they just found the six worst nursing homes in France, but this is pretty dramatic findings, you know, that you have 20% of their entire day in a hypoglycemic state. I mean, that's just nuts. So um, yeah, back off, back off the, the insulin. Kate?
1: Yeah, it's obviously not good for people. I think it's a little bit of a tricky study design, you know, when they, they put people on continuous glucose monitoring and you know you're going to find more than you expect to find when you're you know wearing a continuous glucose monitor so it, it doesn't seem like a lot of these were were symptomatic events which is good it's obviously still not good for for you you know we know that that's also associated with an increased risk of of sudden death um and it's probably due to to un, undiagnosed or unrecognized hypoglycemia so there's certainly an association there um but i think you know in terms of that that sort of scary sounding percentage um it's it's probably just because we were looking we happened to find um, so the, the takeaway is still the same. Don't do it. Um, the, you know, yeah, set those targets a little higher. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I'm curious in younger patients, would you see a similar pattern, you know, if you put them on uh, and I, you know, obviously there've been lots of studies of continuous glucose monitoring. I don't recall the, the percentages being quite that high, but that's still a great question, Kate. All right. Uh, oh, I'm up next. That's me. Um, so, yeah, this is uh, the title is of the poem of the study is Efficacy and Safety of Using Dual versus Monotherapy Antiplatelet Agents in Secondary Stroke Prevention, Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis of Randomized Controlled Clinical Trials. It was in circulation, 2021, page 2441. And it asked the question, what's the balance of benefits and harms for dual antiplatelet therapy or DAPT compared with monotherapy. These authors identified uh, randomized trials that compared dual antiplatelet therapy with monotherapy started within three days of the index stroke or TIA. Um, In some cases, they were also able to get data from other studies that had randomized folks within a longer period, but just the subset that were within three days. Overall, it was, I think, a well-done meta-analysis. They found 17 studies with over 27,000 patients Most studies targeted patients with minor ischemic stroke or TIA, and the studies were generally good quality. So monotherapy was aspirin in 15 of the 17 studies. The other two used clopidogrel. The most common DAPT regimen was aspirin plus clopidogrel. The largest study, though, the Thales study, compared aspirin alone with aspirin plus ticagrelor, which is brilinta. Uh, Because it was such a large study, they did sensitivity analyses with and without the inclusion of this study. So overall, using DAPT instead of monotherapy for up to 30 days resulted in 20 fewer strokes and two more major hemorrhages per 1,000 persons, so pretty significant benefit of DAPT over monotherapy. The likelihood of a major hemorrhage was the same when the Thales trial was excluded. Um, They stratified the analysis by more than 30 days or less than 30 days of treatment. The longer studies gave you no more benefit, but the risk of hemorrhage was greater. So um, this is also guideline consistent. And for patients with a minor stroke or TIA-DAPT with aspirin plus clopidogrel for up to 30 days, reduces the likelihood of subsequent stroke. Number needed to treat is 50 um, and is better than aspirin with a small increase in the risk of hemorrhage number needed to harm of about 500. Treating for more than 30 days does no good and increases the harms.
2: John. This is very helpful, very helpful meta-analysis because there are lots of options for what to do uh, post tiaa So this I, I think is a very nice clarification uh, using a regimen that's not expensive and lowering the subsequent harm. So uh very helpful. Thank you, Mark.
0: Hey Kate, what's up? What do you think?
1: What's
2: up? What's <laughs> up? What's up? <laughs> <laughs> is, uh, was, Hopefully
1: not your risk of stroke. Uh yeah no I think uh, it it is like you said consistent with guidelines which uh, say you know starting the aspirin immediately starting the um the the dual antiplatelet uh, as soon as possible after the the high risk TIA or or any first stroke um, it's trickier of course for people when you're talking about primary prevention um, and then the end date is really the the trickier thing so you know other studies have sort of found like 21 days 30 days you know maybe as as possibly as many as 90. Um, now, now this one says 30, but it, it does seem clear that there is an end date. Um, and I think that's, that's going to be the next sort of big, big punch of evidence is going to be, um, yeah, figuring
0: that out. And that's something that's, I mean, that's true for, you know, following stenting or acute coronary syndrome, we get into these same issues of, you know, I'll see patients who are left on DAPT for very long periods and I've had patients post minor stroke who've had been on DAPT, you know, a year later, two years later, and then, you know, I talk to them and you know. Cardiologist wants me to keep taking it or neurologist wants me to keep taking it. So there is a more is better, um, you know, attitude often. And I I love that the guideline says as well, you know, up to 30 days. So Mark,
2: I have a question here. Uh, I assume, though, that one would continue aspirin alone indefinitely as preventive therapy. Yes, correct. Absolutely.
0: Yep. Yeah. Aspirin for secondary prevention of stroke, heart attack is is still, uh, you know, strongly recommended.
1: They'd also done some studies where they looked at um, the combination of uh, aspirin, clopidogrel, and Agrinox, um, and they found that that was associated with a huge increase in, in bleeding. So triple therapy, bad for you. Bad. And, okay, Right, bad. don't do that.
0: Okay, don't do that. Great. John?
2: I was having dinner with my wife and friends last week, and the gentleman asked, have you heard the latest study from Johns Hopkins showing that lockdowns are of no benefit? And uh, I was a little taken aback. I hadn't seen the headline yet in the newspaper. So I said, no, I haven't. But I'll take a look at that and let you know what I think. So now you're going to hear what I think. (laughs) And the title then of my abstract is no association between lockdowns and COVID mortality, question mark. So here it is. This meta-analysis of this association is from the Johns Hopkins Institute for Applied Economics, Global Health, and the Study of Business Enterprise, interesting title for an institute at Johns Hopkins. The authors identified 34 pertinent studies, and they only included 24 in the meta-analysis. Actually, they screened many more than that, and they eliminated about 100 studies, I have to say. They separated the studies into three categories, which I thought made sense. One is lockdown stringency index studies. There is a lockdown stringency index generated by the Brits. Shelter in place order studies and specific non-pharmacological interventions like closing schools as as a single intervention. Now the stringency index studies, which constituted about 12 of these studies, Uh, found that lockdowns in Europe and the United States reduced COVID mortality only by about 0.2% on average, so very low. The shelter-in-place interventions reduced COVID mortality by 2.9%, which seems important to me. The specific NPI studies found no effect on COVID mortality. And interestingly, the author's comment toward the beginning of this report, quote, While this meta-analysis concludes that lockdowns have little or no public health effects, they have imposed enormous economic and social costs where they have been adopted. In consequence, lockdown policies are ill-founded and should be rejected as a pandemic policy instrument. Well, of course, I have many problems with this meta-analysis and the author's conclusions. First of all, only 22 of the studies they included out of the 34 had been peer-reviewed, and 12 hadn't even been peer-reviewed. And by the way, this meta-analysis has not been peer-reviewed either. It's just published as a report online. Of course, all these studies are observational, so there are many inherent confounders. Uh, Number three, there is no non-intervention control group, except maybe Switzerland, which, by the way, didn't introduce any restrictive mandates early on, and has resulted in a much higher mortality from COVID as of this week compared to other nearby studies. For example, in Sweden, it's 160 per 100,000 residents, Norway, 28, Finland, 40, Denmark, 70 per 100,000. So Sweden did much worse with their non-lockdown policies. Uh, how How do you explain that? That's a large difference in death rate But it's not due to a large difference in immunization rates, which are very similar in these countries, uh, very, very close. Number four, there was a lot of heterogeneity in the studies they included. For example, there was one study that actually found a 35% reduction in mortality. And what about this 2.9% reduction in mortality that they say happened? That would translate to about 30,000 deaths prevented in the U.S. alone, not ignoring the rest of the globe. So that's not a trivial reduction, which they dismiss. And of course, this study ignores hospitalizations and long-term complications, which are very important. And then finally, uh, one might think that these authors could have some bias because they're all economists, and that's, that's fine. Economists do great work but they all are from a right-leaning think tank. So one has to wonder a bit if they didn't reach a conclusion and look for data to support it. Uh, Kate, uh, I sent Kate a note about the study and, and she was not happy with it. Kate?
1: Yeah, I had many of the same concerns. Um, it's a study where I'm, I'm a little bit not sure that I, I, I'm even wild about Sort of giving it this much airtime, honestly, um, because of the the many problems with it. Um, you know, some of the the other concerns were were their definition of lockdown, which included um, any kind of of public policy, uh, so masking, uh, school closures, um, you know, uh, shelter in place uh, orders, which you know were were not necessarily enforced. So um that that sort of uh heterogeneity would would be the kind that it, you know it's not statistical but it is the kind of thing where you would really ask yourself are these you know do they have enough in common that you could even reasonably put them together in a meta analysis um or really should they be um you know sort of thought of differently uh so you know the the sort of long and the short of it is if if this were a, a straight medical study i'm not sure that that we would we would be giving it this much airtime at all so uh, but we'll see. I actually am very curious to sort of read some of the, you know, the, the sort of rigorous studies about what do we think, you know, how well do we think some of the public health measures did work, um, you know, and, and I actually really am very curious to sort of learn what we are going to learn about um, about the pandemic when we get there. I mm-hmm.
0: think where we might learn the most is in uh, the UK, where they've actually studied things quite closely. They've had a series of lockdowns. My sister is an economist working in Whitehall and has worked on COVID restriction policy. So I'll be curious to <clears throat> talk to her about you know how their what their experience was and what their findings were. Henry, any final comments on this one?
3: Yeah. So John, I, th- I I think you did a nice job with covering most of your objections to the underlying science of this. And I, I, I do disagree that um, you know we shouldn't dismiss just because it comes from a right-wing think tank. If this came from a left-wing uh, think tank, we would have the same issues that yes. you know, fundamentally what we are yes. about is a search for truth using the scientific method. And this involves using careful observation, rigorous Data collection, drawing objective conclusions, maybe developing hypotheses that we can further um, test. And you know, there's nothing about this about the scientific method that says find the data that prove my opinion. And you know, this paper to me is not research; it is an opinion piece. And it basically, as Mark alluded to at the very beginning, it's it's a search for the data that support their position.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, when I work with uh, students, they'll come to me with an idea for a research project and they'll frame it as, I want to prove that. And so they've already got the answer in mind before they start. And that's always like, okay, hold, stop. Let's stop. <laughs> Let's actually think of a research question. All right. Um, great. And yeah, it's uh, um, thanks for bringing that one to us, John. Um, not without controversy, but uh, uh, interesting. I think the strongest data, like you said, is the Scandi data comparing Sweden with Norway, Finland, and Denmark, as you, as you said, and much uh, lower death rates in, the, in those other countries. Um, Feast of St. Valentine, give us the answer.
2: Yes, when was it established? And the correct answer is in the fifth century. And I'm going to quote directly from the omniscient reference called Wikipedia. There is a tradition that the Feast of St. Valentine's Day was established by Pope Galatius I in AD 496 to be celebrated on February 14th in honor of St. Valentine of Rome, who died on that date in AD 269. Uh, It was observed that uh, the feast was found in the Galatian sacramentary, which is sort of a compilation of things. And which demonstrated that it had been observed since the 8th century, and the day became associated with romantic love not till the 14th and 15th centuries. Uh, So now we have the origin of St. Valentine's Day. Excellent. And
0: Henry, here's your bonus trivia. All right. <laughs> yeah. So there's a famous
3: um, scene in the movie, Roman Holiday, it was actually unrehearsed between Cary Grant and Audrey Hepburn that takes place at the mouth of truth, the Boca della Verita. Um, it's a big stone that sits on the portico just outside this church, Santa Maria in Cosmodine. Uh, several years ago, our daughter was in an opera festival in Rome and uh, Terry and I happened to find this place and we decided to go into the church. and. There we found the grisly display of skull and bones attributed to St. Valentine. And for those who have access to our script, I posted a, uh, it's a, a raw picture of the uh, of the skull and bones. It really is pretty gross looking. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thank you, Henry. Thanks, Henry, for that. <laughs> Thanks, everyone, for listening. And um, again, me Credit, IFP.com. Click on their IFP Education webpage. They're accredited by the ACCME to give CME, and they follow all the rules. Uh, You can read the complete disclosure on the IFP website. I hope you enjoyed today's review of four interesting, helpful poems. Tell your friends, and we'll talk to you soon with more primary care updates.